Our uh, second Bible reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. This is what Scripture says. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me for a moment of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel and for Matthew who wrote it. And we ask now that you would speak to us through this story and teach us by your spirit and help us to live lives ever more faithful to Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. If you were with us last Sunday, you might recall that we looked at the opening verses of Mark's gospel, focused on two things. First, the preparation of the people for the coming of the Christ, and second, the preparation of Jesus himself for the ministry God had called him to. So that period of preparation is now over, and the time has come for Jesus to launch his mission, which brings us to our text for this morning. But as always, I think it's important to set the context here, and we'll try to do that briefly. I think as most of you know, Matthew begins his gospel with a lengthy genealogy, which may seem like an odd or even off-putting way to begin. But he does that because he knows we won't understand the story he's about to tell unless we see it in the light of a much longer story, which goes back for centuries, but leads up to this Jesus he wants to tell us about. In other words, the Old Testament tells the story which Jesus completes. And so Matthew anchors Jesus in the history of the Jewish nation and refers to him in chapter 1, verse 1 of his gospel as the son of David. Now, as an aside, it seemed to many people, and to me included, that the Bible sort of everywhere assumes that you've already read the Bible. And in referring to Jesus as the son of David, that is meant to remind us of royalty, kingship, the promise of rest from enemies, a continuing dynasty, all that God had promised in his covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. In that same first verse of Matthew, Jesus, Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of Abraham, <clears throat> recalling for us God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and reminding us that Jesus belongs to a people whose very reason for existence 
was to bring blessing to the rest of humanity. Jesus shared that mission, and as Messiah, he'd come to make it a reality at last. Now, after the genealogy, Matthew recounts the miraculous circumstances of Jesus' birth and the angelic announcement that he would save his people from their sins. And then the visit of the wise men, who somehow know that a king has been born, king of the Jews. And then the preaching of John the Baptist, what we looked at last week, which also appears here in Matthew's Gospel, and his reference to one still to come mightier than he. And finally, Jesus' baptism by John and his temptation in the wilderness. And so this period of preparation, Jesus' baptism and temptation is now over, and the time has come for him to launch his messianic mission, his messianic program, the reason for his coming, which brings us to our text this morning. And we're going to look at this text, this passage, under three headings. First, Jesus launches his mission, that's verses 12 to 17. Second, Jesus calls his disciples, verses 18 to 22. And third, Jesus demonstrates the power of God's kingdom in word and deed, in verses 23 to 25. So if you look at verse 12, it appears that the uh, arrest and imprisonment of John the Baptist is what prompts Jesus to return to Galilee and begin his ministry. But why would that be? What's the connection between these two events? Well, John's task, as Isaiah had prophesied, and as we looked at last week, was to prepare the people for the coming king, prepare the way for the king, to prepare the, prepare the people to receive him. And John did that, preaching a message of repentance and pointing to one yet to come. Well, his task has now ended, as the one to whom he pointed has arrived. In other words, John's arrest and imprisonment is the end of his ministry and the signal for Jesus to begin his. Now, we don't want to pass over the arrest of John the Baptist too quickly because it looks ahead, it's a pointer forward to the sufferings of Jesus and his disciples and really of all who follow Christ in any age. Remember Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 19. Because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, we are never going to be popular with the world. We are never going to earn the world's praise. The people are going to hate us. Jesus chose us, they're going to hate us. And right after he said that, he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, we don't often experience persecution in this country, though that could change at any time. I often wonder sometimes what kind of country my kids will inherit. Persecution of Christians is real. It's real and ongoing in many places around the world, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, India, and elsewhere. And we should pray to the Lord on behalf of our brothers and sisters who suffer persecution, yet we shouldn't be surprised at wrongdoing and even violence aimed at the followers of Christ. John's arrest and imprisonment looks ahead to the sufferings of the Messiah and his people. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so Jesus returns to Galilee, the region he was from. This is a little over 100 miles north of Jerusalem, and settles in Capernaum, a sizable village on the northwest shore of Lake Galilee. But why Galilee? Why did he return there? Just because he was from there? Why make Galilee the center, the launching point of his ministry? Why not Jerusalem, the city of David, the city where the temple was located, where the religious establishment was to be found? 
Or perhaps in modern parlance, shouldn't Jesus be in the place where he can speak truth to power? Why Galilee? Well, think of what we know of Galilee. Galilee was an area of ancient Israel that had suffered greatly during the invasion of Syria, a region just north of Galilee in the 8th century BC. And you can read about this in the book of 2 Kings. And in 2 Kings chapter 15, we read that in the time of Pekah, king of, his, uh, king of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, conquered Galilee and deported many of its citizens into Syria. And the Assyrian method here was they would go in, they would conquer an area, they would take out many of the leading citizens out of that area, resettle them elsewhere in the Assyrian Empire, and bring other people from the Assyrian Empire and resettle them in Galilee. And so Galilee, the Galilean people in Jesus' day were a mixed group, a group of Jews and pagans, and generally despised by the people of Judea and Jerusalem. Now Jesus moved to Galilee, Matthew explains, fulfill the words of Isaiah the prophet. Verses 15 and 16 of our text are actually a quote of Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2, which are part of a longer paragraph looking to Emmanuel's coming. In fact, just a few verses later in Isaiah are the words we all know, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Same chapter. But look at those words, 15 and 16, the verses here. Galilee of the Gentiles. Those are the people living in darkness. And Isaiah says they've seen a great light. They will see a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The point of the quotation from Isaiah and Jesus' move to Galilee is now clear. Jesus goes to Galilee to launch his messianic program because first blessings in messianic times were promised by God through Isaiah to Israelites in the far north of Palestine, despised Galilee, a place where people lived in darkness, without the religious advantages of Jerusalem, a place neglected by the religious leaders of Jesus' day, a place of despondency and depravity, death's shadow. In that place, Matthew tells us, light, a great light, messianic light, has dawned. The ancient prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus' coming. He goes to Galilee because first blessings in messianic times were promised to Galilee. I think there are three points here for us. First, if messianic light dawns on the darkest of places, remember this is, this is a land of darkness, depravity, despondency. If messianic light dawns on the darkest of places, Messiah's salvation can only be a bestowal of grace. In other words, it's true. Jesus came to call not the righteous, but sinners. And that's good news for us. It's good news for the people of this city. And it's good news for our unbelieving family members, friends, and neighbors, and colleagues. If messianic light dawns on the darkest of places, that's good news. Second, in moving to Galilee, Jesus is following the character and the mission of God, setting an example for us to follow. Now, perhaps Jesus had in mind Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'm not saying he did, but perhaps he did. Deuteronomy 10 verse 18 tells us briefly about the character of God, that he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, the stranger, the sojourner. 
What's a sojourner? Somebody who's temporarily located in an area. You could think immigrant, refugee. God loves the alien, the stranger, the sojourner. And remember what Galilee is, a place of spiritual darkness, a place of despondency and depravity, death's shadow. That's where God would have gone. That's where you'd find God. And that's where Jesus went, like father, like son. Where is that place today? If we're intent on following Jesus, at least some of us need to be in that place. Third point, as always, God's people then and now, you and I today, have to decide what reading of our experiences we'll live by. Think of the people of Galilee in Isaiah's day, hearing that word of Isaiah. People living in darkness have seen a great light. Are we to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, and conclude that God has forgotten us? What about the people of Galilee in Isaiah's day? Is that what they should have been doing? Or as Isaiah suggests, no matter what we're living through, are we not to remember God's promises and look to the future with faith and hope? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? The darkness is real, yes, it's true, but it's not the whole truth. It's not the only truth, and it's certainly not the most fundamental truth. Friends, we are called to remember God's promises and his past acts of faithfulness and deliverance. Remembering is what sustains us in the dark times, the difficult times, and it's what God would have us do. Now, there's a great illustration of this in the Old Testament in the story of Joseph, one of the most gripping accounts in the Old Testament. I'm sure you remember the story. His brothers hated him. Remember, they sold him into slavery in Egypt, and he became a slave in the house of Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. But then Potiphar's wife falsely accused Joseph of sexual impropriety, and he was cast into prison for at least two years. All this time, Joseph is faithful to God. The scriptures say repeatedly, the Lord was with him, with him in slavery, with him in prison. And then Joseph interprets dreams. Remember this? Those of the cupbearer, the baker, and Pharaoh himself. And his story continues. It takes up 12 chapters in Genesis. Well, when we skip into the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, we read a long account of uh, commending various people. This is in Hebrews 11. Some people call it the Hall of Fame of Faith. It's a long account commending various people, and there's a reference to Joseph. Do you remember what he was commended for? Was it his patience, his sexual purity, perhaps? his ability to interpret dreams, his forgiveness of his brothers. I mean, that'd be a big one, right? Forgiveness. The commendation is just a single verse, Hebrews 11.22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. He made mention of the exodus. The exodus hadn't happened yet. And he gave instructions concerning his bones. And sure enough, when we look at the very end of Genesis, chapter 50, the last chapter, and the last few verses, we read this. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. The New Testament book of Hebrews commends Joseph for his faith in the promises of God, those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Joseph believed in the promises of God, so much so that he gave instructions concerning his bones. He's going to die in Egypt, but his final resting place will be in the promised land. Friends, this is one of those instances in which we are called to be like Joseph, to imitate his faith, and to remember God's promises. It's in remembering that we can face the future with faith and hope. From of old, Matthew tells us, the Messiah was promised, verse 15, to Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. Now, though Jesus will minister in Galilee mainly to Jews, this scripture looks forward to that wider mission of the disciples to Gentiles. It looks forward to the Great Commission, which Matthew ends with, of course, in chapter 28, the command to make disciples of all nations. Friends, Jesus the Messiah is not just for Israel, not just for the church, but for the world, even for the darkest of places. Recall these words from the Gospel of John speaking of Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus is in Galilee, and a turning point is reached as he begins to cry out to proclaim Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the call to repent ties in with the angelic announcement of Jesus' birth back in chapter 1, where the angel had told Joseph, You are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the call to repent accents the ethical character of the response Jesus is looking for. And, of course, when this chapter ends, chapter 4 of Matthew, you move right into the Sermon on the Mount. The call to repent accents the ethical character of the response Jesus is looking for, but it's not simply a call for you to give up your private sins. It's at least that, but it's also more. Note in verse 17 that the nearness of the kingdom is the reason for repentance. Do you see that? Repent for or because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come near. What's unique is not the call to repent. That was a common enough prophetic demand. What's unique is that the ground of repentance, the reason for it, is the nearness of the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, we touched on this last week. The kingdom of heaven simply means the rule of God, the saving rule of God. And its nearness means that the rule of God is being brought to bear in this present world. God is becoming king. You see, from at least Genesis chapter 12, it appears that, this is God's covenant with Abraham, it appears that God had, had prepared to deal with the problems in his creation through Israel. Israel was to be the means through which the world would be saved. As Jesus put it in John's gospel, salvation is of the Jews. And this salvation would be accomplished through Israel's history reaching a great climax in which God would visit his people, save them from their enemies, and bring his peace and justice, his mercy and truth to bear upon the whole world, renewing and restoring all things and healing all of creation. The burden of Jesus' preaching, then, is that God's hour had struck the time to which all the Old Testament had looked forward. God's reign upon the earth had begun in the person of the Lord Jesus, and that's why repentance is so critical. You see, the coming of the kingdom means danger as well as hope. You know, if you turn back to that first Bible reading that Phoebe read for us, 
in verse 4, this is Isaiah 35, verse 4, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. He will come with divine retribution. He will come to save you. The coming of the kingdom means danger as well as hope. You see, if justice and peace are on the way, those who've disturbed the peace or perverted justice had better get their act together. They'd better repent. One commentator paraphrased Jesus' call to repent this way. Return from your false views of the world and embrace the reality and presence of the coming kingdom of God in me. You may not see the power of God's healing kingdom breaking into history, but you can believe that in me God's liberating power is now present. So give up your old way of life and trust me for a new one. Friends, the call to repent is just as urgent today as it was then, perhaps even more so. The kingdom has come in the words and works of Jesus and his disciples, but the fullness of the kingdom lies still in the future. And at least one reason for that is to allow many to enter the kingdom now. Are we working to extend God's kingdom in the world through worship and prayer, through obedience and witness, and through the giving of ourselves and our resources? Or are we just standing by? Are we working to extend God's kingdom in the world? Well, having called for repentance and proclaimed the nearness of the kingdom, in verses 18 to 22, Jesus begins to gather a new community around himself, a kingdom community, something he's still doing and something that we are privileged to participate in. Some of those called, like Peter and Andrew and James and John, are called to leave everything behind and travel full-time with Jesus, becoming the nucleus of a renewed people of God, a renewed Israel. And those called full-time to that kind of radical discipleship depend on others to meet their needs. But not all are called in the same way. Others, like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, well, they too were called to follow Jesus and be loyal to him, but to do so while remaining in their homes and villages and even in their existing occupations. The outworking of the call will be different for each one of us. We heard last week the, the young man who was here, maybe not too young, but the doctor from working in Africa. Well, that was the call of God on his life. The call of God on our lives will be different, perhaps. But we are called... We are called, all of us are called to follow, to give full allegiance and devotion to Jesus, to accept his agenda. And we're called to follow without knowing where it's all going to lead. Think of Peter and Andrew. Did they know right away what Jesus even meant when he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men? Did he know how the men in question would feel about it? Did they know what difficulties lay ahead? Of course not. It's the mercy of God that he reveals these things to us little by little. And what about James, Zebedee's son? When Jesus called him, did he know that in a few short years he'd be dead, killed on the orders of Herod, something we read about in Acts 12? Well, of course not. Peter and Andrew and James and John saw only Jesus and were called by him, and that was enough. And it's enough for us as well. We're called to follow to be faithful without knowing where it's all going to lead. What does it mean for you to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus? How does it, how has it affected your educational and career choices?
the moves you've made, your life as a single person or married or married with children. What does it mean for you to follow Jesus? Jesus calls all of us to a radical following and to embrace his agenda in acknowledgement that he is the world's true Lord. Well, our text comes to an end in verses 23 to 25 with Jesus teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease, every sickness among the people. This is Jesus demonstrating the power of God's kingdom in word and deed. Now, one thing we go on to see in the Gospels is that this ministry of Jesus, his ministry of word and deed, is not carried out only by him. In chapter 10 of this Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples to do as he'd been doing, proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You see, the disciples, too, engaged in a ministry of proclamation and demonstration, word and power. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus appointed 72 others to go into towns two by two with the same mission. Heal the sick in it. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Again, a ministry of word and power. Word and power. Now, if you've read the Gospels before, all four of them, you know that our Lord's healings were a vital part of his work. Now, on the one hand, they are evidence of Jesus' credentials, something made plain in Matthew 11, evidence that he was the Messiah, the one to whom John the Baptist had pointed. But that's not all. The healings were also signs of the new thing that God was doing through him. As former Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright puts it, God's kingdom, God's sovereign saving rule, was at last being unleashed upon Israel and the world through him. And how could this not bring healing in its wake? Again, remember the passage, Isaiah 35, that Phoebe read earlier. That's about what God will do in the age of salvation. The blind, the eyes of the blind are opened, the, the crippled are healed. Remember that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And in his works of healing, Jesus the Savior is rolling back the effects of sin, undoing sin, as it were, and giving us all a foretaste of what life in the kingdom will be like, when all sickness, all tears will be done away with. What motivated Jesus to heal? What motivated this ministry? Well, if you look carefully at the Gospels, you'll see that repeatedly that our Lord's compassion is what motivated him and moved him to heal. And friends, Jesus is still the compassionate Savior, the Savior we need. And as we follow in his steps, engaged in that ongoing ministry of proclamation and demonstration of word and power, it's important that we, too, act out of proper motives, compassion for the sick and the needy, and a desire for God's glory. It is interesting to trace this use of the word compassion through the Gospels. When you do that, you'll see that it was our Lord's compassion that moved him to teach the ignorant, our Lord's compassion that moved him to feed the hungry, our Lord's compassion that moved him to heal the sick. As God's people, Christ's followers, the same compassion that characterized our Lord should also characterize us, his people. And we need to pray to the Lord that he would develop in us that same kind of compassion. Well, with the launch of Jesus' ministry, 
the blessings that God had promised for the end times have broken out. In the words and works of Jesus, the powers of darkness are being undermined, sin is being dealt with, and the kingdom, the saving rule of God, is advancing. And Jesus' messianic reign is continuing in the world today. As God's people, you and I, submit to His authority, embrace His mission of proclamation and demonstration, and bear witness to the gospel of the kingdom. You know, in uh, the church I attend and in this church, it, it seems that every Sunday in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The life of heaven is to become the life of the world. And friends, the call of Jesus on our lives is to live today in a way that will make sense in God's promised future. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word, and we do pray that you would continue to impress your word uh, upon us. And we pray that you'd help us to live in light of it and to live ever more faithfully to the Lord Jesus, grateful for being called by him and called by him to participate in his great work of calling men and women to himself. So help us, Lord, to be busy about the work that we've been called to, the work of proclamation and demonstration. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.